Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is the Unheard Podcast. We try to avoid wild exaggeration here at Unheard, but it seems fair to say that the question of whether liberalism can survive is one of the most important questions of the age. It also seems fair to say that the biggest and most eminent scholar and expert of liberalism in the world is the philosopher, writer, and now New Statesman columnist, Professor John Gray. We had the delight of having him here at the Unheard Club a couple of weeks ago, and we wanted to share with you his original talk, our little discussion, as well as the questions that he took the time to answer at the end. All of it was full of insight and his characteristic warmth. Enjoy. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Freddie. Glad to be back, little friend of you and Unheard. I'm going to wave your book. (laughs) because John has a new book out. It's called The New Leviathan's Thoughts After Liberalism. And that, I think, is kind of where we should focus today. Uh, We could talk about a lot of different things, but I think to try by the end of our section of the conversation to imagine what the world might look like after liberalism will be a really interesting place to get. I'm going to start with a quote from your book. Enclaves of freedom persist but a liberal civilization based on the practice of tolerance has passed into history. (laughs) Slightly gloomy, you might think. Uh, Not really, because we're sitting in one of the enclaves. Well, there you go. One of the things I love about John is that despite this incredibly bleak worldview, he remains so cheerful. It's that that combination. Well, I regard myself as incorrigibly optimistic. All the hopes I've occasionally have turned out to be quashed by events, so. (laughs) But in this case, we're practicing what remains of liberalism while it's still here. Is it your view that, as you put it here, a liberal civilization has passed into history? So liberalism, the the era of liberalism, the, the era where we live in a negotiated society with strong institutions, tolerance, respect for people we fundamentally disagree with, that is now in the past. Is that your view? Yes, that is my view, and it's not coming back. Something else might come back. Something else might emerge. Something else which is new, which may bring back or revive or reinvent or uh, some elements of liberalism. I hope that's the case. I hope that there can be something like the practice of tolerance again. But um, what I think has not been noticed by many commentators is that two things happened at the same time, which, uh, or, or in parallel, 
which um, I think have uh, undermined the post-Cold War model of convergence on a liberal civilization. I mean, after the end of the Cold War in 1989, 1990, 1991, not just among Fukuyama, he was a vessel for this thought. Many people believed that um, liberal values would become universally accepted. And the sort of the core idea was that only liberal democracy would be a legitimate regime in future. That was the core of, uh, and I think that basically has been falsified in two ways. One is that other models of society, um, none of them actually that I myself would like very much, but the Chinese model is, is kind of an, an example, have emerged, uh, which clearly challenge the claims of liberal societies to be potentially universal. But perhaps the bigger change has been in liberal societies themselves, which is, which is that both as economic models and as um, embodiments of tolerance, they've morphed out of existence. When people said back in the 90s and, uh, uh, that liberalism would become universal, they assumed that the liberal societies that then existed would um, continue to exist and would extend their, their reach. But we all know now that um, practices of uh, 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 cancellation, practices of uh, deplatforming, of debanking, have developed, whereby people with views that are regarded as beyond the progressive pale, which don't conform to some progressive ideology, which, by the way, doesn't see itself as an ideology. Some of the people involved in the banking, the debanking, said uh, this wasn't politics. It was just inclusion. It was just uh, diversity and inclusion. In other words, they can't see, and I think this is genuine, most of them are rather dim, but apart from that, <laughs> uh, they can't actually see that what they're promoting is an ideology. Politics is something that goes on in a small way in Westminster, but they as embodiments of a, of a progressive project aren't doing anything um, political. But that variety of practices has really had a very chilling effect on freedom of thought and expression, and not only in universities, but everywhere. And there's a rather crucial feature of this, which I think uh, has to be taken fully on board. The um, restraints on freedom of speech and expression that exist in formerly liberal societies are not imposed by a dictatorial or authoritarian government on the whole. They're imposed by civil institutions themselves. They're imposed by universities, by arts associations, by museums, by all the kinds of things that happened in China because people are terrified to deviate from the government, happen by themselves spontaneously here. And that's a profound metamorphosis, I think, in Western liberal societies. And I can't see how we can get back to a situation in which Tolerance and freedom of speech and expression, which is a very wide range, is taken for granted, which it was, I'm old enough to remember, in the 70s and 80s, and I would say even almost up to the 90s. It was simply a, a taken for granted thing that, with, on a very wide range, you could think and say what you like. I remember, for example, uh, it would be strange now, one of my intellectual mentors was uh, Isaiah Valin, and he said, um, read this, read this, very good book, bit of a Nazi, but read it. <laughs> uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was a book on, uh, a book on uh, by Wyndham 
Lewis, yes. I think, uh, called um, The Demon of Progress and the Arts. Brilliant book, brilliant. Pity he was Nazi, there we are. Uh, now, you, you couldn't say that now. If you recommended a book by someone suspect, in the way that he was genuinely suspect. By the way, after I read the book, I went to the London Library and I picked up a copy of one of um, his books published in the 30s, the original version. First of all, there was a swastika on the front, so. <laughs> Secondly, on the page I opened, I'm not making this up, it said the, the person he most thought of as being similar to Adolf Hitler was William Blake. I thought that was going a bit, <laughs> going a bit far, shall we say, going a bit far. But you, nowadays, anything of that, and neither Berlin nor I nor anyone else at that time thought that there was, uh, we recognize how uh, evil even Lewis was, and incomparably more so Hitler. But you could joke, you could talk, you could make references, you could say that people who, writers who were in general poisonous or toxic had important insights, you could discuss them, you could swap them. And that was all taken for granted. If it ever comes back, which I doubt, it will be as a result of a tremendous struggle. So that's what I say, Freddie, when, uh, what, what, that's my answer, which is that that kind of taken for granted, not unlimited, but taken for granted ability to talk freely without being afraid. And here's another, I'll give you a different feature. I used to travel a lot in the communist period in communist Europe. And the thing about the repression then was you had to be very careful. But um, if you talk to a group of intellectuals or others or non-intellectuals, ordinary people, there'd be a period in which everyone was afraid because there could be a snitch in the group often, sometimes was actually. Um, but after a few vodkas, things melted. People emerged, shared their thoughts, um, their real thoughts in many cases, in the belief that they could do so with people they trust, or at least they were prepared to take the risk. Now what's interesting now is, in Western societies, that a private realm in which people can express their views is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So if you say something in a common room or a canteen or a, or a meeting or walking with someone in the street, it could be that it would be held against you. You can put up a private email, somehow leaks and someone else finds what, what that, that's used against you. So one of the key features of totalitarian communism, and Nazism was similar in many ways, of course, and worse in some ways, um, is that the private realm has shrunk. Uh, um, there's an, another feature which I think is important, which is that behind their conformist faces in the former Soviet bloc, there were real people. I'm not sure there are here. Behind their- There are here. Well, here they are, yes. I can see them all in front of me. But in general, I'm not sure that um, there's anything much um, behind the um, faces of people who conform to the progressive consensus uh, today. And one of my reasons for that is that morally, I think many of the um, people who adopt and conform to the um, progressive consensus here are more morally culpable than in communist countries. Because in communist countries, if you didn't conform, it wasn't just you who suffered. Your children were denied university, your mother was denied medical care. The whole family was crushed and annihilated. Now, however badly off we are now, it's not the case that if you're cancelled, your cousin is denied national health care. It's, it, the, the, the sanctions are much less. So the, the, the deep puzzle about this 
morphing to illiberalism in formerly liberal societies is that um, it's not imposed by an authoritarian government. The sanctions for deviating from it are real. You can lose your career, but they're much less than they were in the communist countries because they don't apply to other people to whom you have obligations and duties. I mean, anyone who criticizes people in communist countries sort of conforming in this way didn't really, I think, didn't really understand the, the, the extremity of the pressures they were under. If it meant death or blindness from an operation for what a grandmother or whatever, very hard to be brave on behalf of someone else. Whereas here, it's simply a matter of career. The one part of bourgeois liberal society that's survived at least as an ambition is career. Well, Most people, even though careers are no longer really possible, by the way, <laughs> too much technological change, careers are very hard to pursue. You may have a career at a university and the department suddenly closed down or the whole system collapses and so on and so forth. People are more attached to careers than they are to anything else. And that, I think, is the primary motivation of conformity to the progressive idea. It's career, nothing else. What should we do about this, John? Uh, <laughs> Talk about it where we are now. I mean, what I, what I really notice is that this is, both on the left and the right, yeah. there are very few people arguing that we should try to rediscover this atmosphere. Mm. It's really about confidence, isn't it, what you described, mm. that ability we, to be tolerant requires mm. a certain confidence that the other person will respect the same rules, yes. that there's enough binding you together, that, yes. that, that, that some kind of settlement can be reached. Once that's lost, it's very hard to, to get it back. And I just noticed that certainly the progressive left is not especially interested in you know, process and fairness. And increasingly, I think there's a portion of the right that also has basically decided, no. let's retake the institutions, let's point them in our own direction, and let's fight a war of war against all. No. Should we be trying to rescue the liberal settlement, or should we just accept that it's past? Well, I think one feature of earlier generations of liberals is that they understood that a liberal society needed to be maintained politically, that there had to be political action, political discussion, and political compromise. Keynes, Maynard Keynes, was a, a liberal, and he understood that very well. He says somewhere, I can't remember where he says, we can only keep this going by guileful compromises, cunning devices, political stratagems, uh, coalitions, that kind of thing. And one of the features of the liberalism that's come to prominence in recent years is that it's wanted to take more and more issues out of politics so that they can't be uh, um, uh, um, contested. contested at all. So if you can establish them as rights, legal rights, or if you can establish them in some way whereby they're, ju they're just beyond contestation. That's what they wanted to do. And of course, the end of the road for that is visible to some extent in the United States, where um, if you have a rights, rights work rather well and are even necessary and useful if they embody uh, um, widely shared values. But if you try to make something into a right which a third of the society regards as detestable or opposes and doesn't share, then you're setting up a number of processes that are hard to stop. The first thing is you politicize the courts. And I say this immodestly, but in a quotation from myself in the book, back in 1991, I said that I thought America would unravel it around abortion, partly because um, there was no general consensus when it was 
when the issue was constitutionalized. I'm, by the way, pro-choice, but I'll put that aside. There was no consensus on it. And about a third of the society rejected that right and thought it should be curbed or even reduced to almost nothing. Um, what then happened was a long process, it took longer than I thought, about 30 years, whereby of an attempted political capture by conservatives of the Supreme Court. When I wrote about that 30 years ago, people thought it was a sort of fantasy, a conspiracy theory, but that's what happens. If you politicize the judicial institutions, if you extend rights, unconditional rights, further than they can be extended in terms of general welfare or in terms of general ideas of what's acceptable, then inevitably, uh, over time, there'll be an attempt by those who feel they've been excluded from this, in this case, about a third of the population, or a quarter maybe, to, over, to take over, to capture the, the, the institutions. The, sta the stage after that, though, this is the, the stage we're getting into now, the next stage, I think, is even worse, because what then happens is that politics becomes, some of you will recognize what I mean by this, Schmittian. Mm. Schmidt, neo-Nazi, or proto-Nazi, then Nazi. By the way, he's thrown out for not being sincere enough. The Nazis thought he was an opportunist. He wasn't Nazi enough. Um, but uh, he was pretty Nazi, I think. But he, he, developed, he, he, developed this, he developed this notion of politics. He said, politics in the end, and I think this is a terrible conception of politics, is a matter of friends and enemies, not of opponents. Friends and enemies. So it then becomes a battle. It becomes war. Politics becomes war, which is what politics, if you like, is an alternative to war. Politics, in Hobbes, for example, or in other writers, is what people do when they try to compromise, when they negotiate, when they bargain, when they try to live together. But the next stage, I think, in America, which probably, if I had to guess, would be after the next presidential election, in which whoever wins, whichever party, whichever person, will not be accepted as legitimate by about a quarter to a third of the population. That's when you'll have Schmidtian politics in its full scale, which is not a very pleasant prospect when you bear in mind the, all the guns that are floating around in America. I'm not saying there'll be a civil war like the civil war before, but there could be civil warfare. That's to say there could be a protracted period in which people fight out their disputes in one way or another and, 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 threaten, and threaten each other. So um, these processes taken together, I think, have, so to speak, eclipsed um, what was the liberal civilization in a fairly conclusive way. I don't see it coming back. Um, not just in my lifetime, which <laughs> might not be all that long, but I don't think any of you in this room will see it come back. But what you might see are enclaves getting bigger, enclaves feeling more confident, enclaves which are hard, hard to shut down. That's what we should be thinking about, I think. Uh, in other words, spaces where you can't say what you think. You didn't have to think about that before when there was a liberal civilization. You could say what you thought in most spaces. There were, I, conventions of courtesy and norms of good manners and so on and decency, but you could say pretty well what you wanted anyway, you can't anymore. So the business, I think one of the projects now is to reinvent such spaces and keep them going and make them hard to attack. One idea you mentioned earlier, looking for a bit of hope here, was <laughs> um, that if, I mean, it's a, it's a strange kind of hope because it sounds very disastrous, but it, it would take it would require some big conflict or it would require some defining event for people to feel coherent enough to want to try and negotiate with each other again. Do you, do you think, for example, if a war comes, 
Well, we've already got one, of course, in Europe. We have one in Europe, but you know, the, the one that is most commonly talked about is mm. the two great poles of China and America. Yeah. You know, in the very depressing, maybe unthinkable scenario that that actually gets to become a hot war or some equivalent large-scale conflict, do you think in the aftermath of that, you might get liberal society coming back? War is not generally redemptive. <laughs> Uh, I mean, we may be spoiled a little by the Second World War, which despite all the myths, I think was a just war and which we didn't lose. We didn't have the experience of occupation, which is a very important point, except in the Channel Isles. If we'd had the experience of occupation, we would know that most people would collaborate, most of the authorities, most of the middle classes. The middle classes, which you know are now touted in liberal theory as the beacons of autonomy, they would collaborate as they did right across Europe. One or two countries, Denmark, Bulgaria, stood out, actually. But on the whole, they, we would know that. Uh, but on the whole, I don't, I, don't hold any, I don't hold out any hope of uh, redemption through war. It's possible that um, when I last had a conversation, um, public conversation with Freddie, we discussed whether uh, China might, um, whether and when China might act on. Yeah, you were quite... You thought that might come quite soon? Yes, I did, yeah, and I still think that. In the next 18 months, It's perhaps. not a firm prediction, but I can see a quite a realistic scenario in which um, the Chinese leadership, I don't know anything about it, no one knows what they're thinking, actually. Um, it's, it's such an impenetrable, more impenetrable even than Russia, I think, in some ways, uh, uh, a regime. But one can easily imagine them seeing uh, the next presidential election in America as a time of maximum uncertainty in America, of maximum introversion in America, and maximum distraction in America. So if they're going to launch anything military, which I think is their second strategy, not their first, it might be them. So they would say, will they react? Will they respond? Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't. So but November, then, December 24. <laughs> I don't want to say 23rd, but uh, no, um, I still think it could happen earlier than many people think. I don't think, uh, but there is another strategy which they might pursue. There are elections in Taiwan, and they might want a political um, way of setting in motion a process of unification without military action. And I'm pretty sure that they've, there have been some public hints to that effect from the leadership uh, uh, that they would prefer that. But there are obstacles to that, and one obstacle is Hong Kong. If they'd respected when they took over uh, Hong Kong the two systems uh, system, they'd be much more likely to succeed in a political strategy in Taiwan because they'd say, look, they're living the way they were before. But if people in Taiwan fear the lid coming down on all their freedoms, then they might not vote for, um, it would be mainly the Kuomintang, former Kuomintang party, for parties favoring unification. But let me put it like this. In the slightly longer term, if I'm wrong about the next two years, 18 months to two years, I see the absorption of Taiwan as practically, by China as practically inevitable. Partly because a lot of um, Taiwanese uh, business has interests on the mainland. There's a financial connection or family on the mainland, but also because quite a lot of American industries are at least half Chinese industries and Chinese companies. Tesla is a semi-Chinese company. Apple is a Chinese. 
semi-Chinese, it is a vast amounts of American capital in China. And what you should be aware of, I think, is whenever people talk in general, some people can use this term intelligently, but when people talk of a second Cold War as a sort of wizened old veteran from the first, from the actual Cold War, it's completely different. In the, in, the, in the actual Cold War, the two main protagonists were not economically codependent. Communism, the Soviet Union, had some impact on the oil price and various industries here and there and so on, but nothing like this. Whereas the West, America, even Britain to some limited extent, and Europe, are joined hip and thigh, despite all the attempts at de-risking uh, uh, that, that had been made. I think it's still the case, um, I haven't checked this, but it's probably roughly, roughly true, that over three quarters of American medicine, medical supplies, especially antibiotics, come from China. So they can cut them off, obviously. But the, I mean, the bottom line is, there's a lot of American capital in China. The, the econ, if you follow the money, if you think that's, it is often, but not always, but it's often a good way of understanding politics. If you follow the money, there'll be strong resistance to, in America, from important economic interests that actually engaging in a conflict with China, which would lead to their assets in China becoming worse. So it sounds like you, are, you have moved a bit a since bit, we yes. last yes, spoke, because you were I quite have. clear that you did think it was like there might be yes. active. And I think there's an alternative possibility, which is the possibility is that nothing happens uh, for a while, but gradually over time, through political infiltration, political through espionage, through um, uh, buying up uh, opinion in the West, in America, and in Taiwan itself, that um, the Chinese get what they wanted. There's no way Xi Jinping or any other post-Xi Jinping leader will give up the claim on Taiwan. It's the jewel in the crown for them. And having been in China, having talked to various people, having heard them say what they do, it's the one thing they're comp not just the one thing, Tibetan, Tibet is also non-negotiable. Falun Gong, there are other things that are non-negotiable. But Taiwan is the big one. It's a test of legitimacy of any leader in, 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 in China. So they're not going to give, give it up. And I think for that reason alone, um, they're likely to, they, they, it's almost inevitable that it will happen. To make one structural point, which I've made in the book, both the West and China have forms of now state capital. There are no free markets. There are no, I mean, there are in certain small areas of business, small businesses, but basically it's managed capitalism, it's state capitalism. But there's a crucial difference between the Chinese version of state capitalism and the Western version of state capitalism. Uh, in the West, governments are bought by companies. In the West, uh, uh, corporate power attempts to control government and attempts at least or at least to influence it. In China, at least at the moment, since Xi, corporate power is a vehicle or an instrument of state power. It's a vehicle of the political goals of the Chinese. So if, you, if an industry is considered to be harmful, shut it down like they shut down the foreign tutoring business. Countless people were affected by that. Huge industry in China, private tutoring, colossal industry. If a particular oligarch is showing too much independence, Jack Ma, he vanishes. He then resurfaced, I don't know where he is now, but a few months ago, he resurfaced to, um, in a Japanese university, giving seminars on agricultural agro agronomy. So he's not dead, 
He's even been seen playing golf, I hear. But silenced. But he's been shut up. The top, that would be like Musk. Musk is not, whatever happens, Musk is not going to be shut up by the White House. Are you, are you a so supporter a of his? Can, let me just ask. Are you a, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's very interesting because what Musk represents, I think, is in part at least, I mean, this is not an original thought, but it's become more clear in the last few months. It's the triumph of the new media over the old media. I mean, since some of you will know the name Tucker Carlson, since he moved to X or Y or whatever it is today, <laughs> his uh, clicks, we don't know how long people watched him, have multiplied tenfold. When he interviewed Orban of Hungary, and then later on, Millet of uh, Argentina, you had 100 million, 150 million, 200 million clicks. What does this tell you about the respective power? Are there, do people click in to hear the thoughts of um, Joe Biden? That, uh, do, do they click in to hear the thoughts of some um, uh, liberal economist? Praising, praising the Biden administration for its immense strides towards a greener world? I don't think so. So there's been a, there's been a big shift, which is partly a shift in the media, and I think that, that will, it's likely to continue. Some say that the, the Musk regime at Twitter might um, melt down. I don't know. I don't know enough, enough about it. But I, what I do know from the public um, evidence, from the facts that are available to me, is that it's a gigantic megaphone now because the other media are not trusted. Maybe we should be a little bit skeptical about the Musk media too, but the, the other media are yes. not trusted. And when they're not trusted as deeply as they are now mistrusted, people turn to alternatives, and that's happening. We've spoken about China and yes. the US. I think it'd be useful to spend a bit of time on Europe mm. and this country. Um, you mentioned green, the green agenda or the green movement. That's been talked about a lot in the last few days. There's been a kind of rolling back of the net zero plans. When we spoke before, you were saying you think that's one of the big mm. issues yes. that is turning across Europe. Mm. And that in some years' time, we might look back at the, the, the net zero era and almost laugh. Do you think that's possible? I do. I think it's more than possible because, um, I mean, some of the consequences of uh, conventional green policies. I should say I'm not a climate skeptic. I'm a disciple in that regard of someone who, a great friend of mine who died recently at the age of 103, James Lovelock. James Lovelock used to say, climate science is inexact. But if it has a bias, it's probably to underestimating the speed of climate change. He thought that climate change would be consist of sudden jumps. It wouldn't be slow. And it, would, could, it could transform things quite quickly, a couple of decades. We might be in the middle of that now. That's my view. I'm not a climate skeptic. What I am very skeptical about is net zero and the kind of conventional green policies that are being launched for a number of reasons. First of all, they were launched before the infrastructure was there to make them work. They were launched before even the technology had developed that could make them work. No. No consideration was given to the fact that many of the raw materials that were needed for the inputs to batteries and, and so on were now substantially or even largely controlled by China in Africa and elsewhere, because it's in Africa that the great game is now being refought of the 19th century. They control huge amounts. Now, they might be found in other countries, Sweden, America, various deposits have been found, but they're not quickly developed. And in the meantime, these programs 
can't go ahead. Nor were there economic costs of these green programs properly um, uh, assessed. Uh, there was a constant insistence on that they would be job creative. Well, even in America, the best of my, they haven't been that job creative, actually. And remember, America is very big and they can throw very large amounts of money at these things. And they can, I mean, to a large extent, this, the Green Program, the Green New Deal there, is, is a protectionist scheme. So they can do it. We can't do that because we're too small. We're too exposed to flows of international capital. We just can't do it. So the idea that in Britain or in Europe, these programs could ever possibly work, it's a bit like suffering from cancer and using candle therapy. That's how it will be remembered, candle therapy, this, this, this kind of period. And then the people might say, ah, yes, but we've got, to, we've got to show that we're on the right side. We've got to, um, we've got to, we've got to even if other people don't give away. I think that's the politics of narcissism. I want to feel good. But in the meantime, you're wasting resources and you're wasting time. If there's a serious possibility that we're now in the early stages of runaway climate change, we should be focusing everything we've got, not on uh, having an infinitesimal impact on global carbon levels, which would be the case even if the whole program was implemented, but on policies of adaptation. Not even a mitigate, but of adaptation. And adaptation is not going to be easy. Some people say, well, we can just adapt. It's going to be jolly difficult, I think, if there's really runaway climate change. But if there is, and if we're now at the start of it and it's not stoppable, remember, most climate scientists would agree that once uh, humanly induced climate change is in the works, the material works, the works of the planet, goes on for decades or even centuries. You can't just stop it. There's a general idea among uh, environmentalists of a radical conventional sort. We started this so we can stop it. No. We started it, probably, but we can't stop it. It's in the works, and it might even be accelerating. And then say, well, shouldn't the world's burning? Shouldn't we, um, should we be doing something radical? Well, the world may be burning, but if it's burning, um, switch turning down your heat, electric, your heating in your house, it's not going to make that much difference or no difference at all. So uh, the result of it, this is why I was talking to Freddie earlier on. We were talking about an earlier conversation we had when we concluded, he and I, um, that we were in an age of tragedy, that we'd entered an age of political tragedy. So I said to, I'm not so sure about that anymore. I think we've advanced further than tragedy. We're entering an age of absurdity. <laughs> and I think uh, the, the, uh, an example of that would be that German climate policy, which of course Germany, as we know, is incomparably more adult, more advanced, more, more modern, and in every way superior to uh, bungling uh, Britain but, and, and, and other countries. But in Germany, the result of their closing down of nuclear and um, uh, going for renewables has been a reliance, an increased reliance, on the dirtiest kind of coal. Well, that is tragic, but it's even more than tragic. It's completely absurd. And the world is advancing rapidly, I think, Western society particularly, into utter absurdity. So that's one of the things we've got to sort of cope with. And if you put these arguments, difficult to do because they start shouting at you or they, they start crying or they, they stay, they can't get up in the morning, I rather brutally suggest, well, don't. <laughs> stay in bed till you get a better reason for getting up. And if you don't, well, there we are. 
Progress always has calcium. Um, they, um, it's, a, it, it, it's an expression of what a, one of the great books of the last century in English was a book by the um, uh, American scholar Philip Reif on Freud. And it was called Freud, the Mind of a Moralist, in which he said Freud was a, Freud was a, a, a stoic moralist. He quoted a wonderful letter of Freud's where Freud said um, his aim in therapy was not to enable people to realize themselves or to achieve happiness. That was not his aim. His aim was to change hysterical misery to the everyday suffering of, norm of human life. Now, that was somehow forgotten. That was his aim. And Reef wrote a later book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. I think it came out in the 60s, in which he said that a therapeutic model of behavior was spreading in every part of society. Rather than using moral terms or even political terms, people started using psycho, uh, psychoanalytical terms. What do you want out of these? Well, I want closure. Well, the thing about Freud is there's never closure. Closure is impossible for Freud. We bear the scars as well as the good things from our infancy, whatever we do. We can't change ourselves with these fundamental respects, according to Freud. And so I think conventional climate policy is the triumph of the therapeutic. People want to feel good. If they don't feel good, but they feel powerless. They don't want to feel powerless, so they deceive themselves. And focusing on the hard question is really, really difficult. By the way, Lovelock told me not long before he died that um, I just illustrate how difficult this is. He's a tremendous figure in climate science, deeply respected by people who even didn't share his Gaia theory and so on. And he said he tried to get some money for a uh, a practical experiment, and the experiment would be to put very inexpensive measuring uh, devices on merchant ships as they travel around the world. And the aim of this was to get an empirical, not a model, he said, models can be completely skewed, but to get empirical, factual data about climate change in different parts of the world. I said, did you get the money? He said, no. I said, why not? He said, I asked for too little. I asked for 250,000. If I asked for 250 million, I might have got it. But you didn't need 250 million to do this. Now, why was this interesting? It was interesting to be partly about the money, but also because people have great faith in the models. His view was that the models were backward looking and were probably underestimating the speed of climate change, not overestimating, underestimating. And that's shaped my view of these things. I think we should go hell for leather for nuclear, but we should also um, um, start thinking very seriously about um, coastal areas, water rising, uh, thinking of that extreme weather will become the norm, might already becoming the norm, and how we actually adapt to those realities to preserve the elements of the civilization we still have. If you're right on that issue, if you're right at least on the politics yes. of that issue, that it's turning, and it seems certainly across Europe to be headed in that direction, Yes, the cost to the former authorities or to the people who've been in charge will be so great because the, the things that you're making light of now are real sort of articles of faith yes. of what they consider good government to look like. What kind of collapse follows the, the, the <laughs> descent into absurdity? Yes. Because really we, what we want to leave here with is whether it's grim or optimistic, we want your sense of what the world might look like yeah. in years to come. And it feels already like these authorities have, are falling one by one 
And there are very few institutions or leaders that are kind of trusted. Well, I think one what of the- What happens next? It's an interesting paradox, and I'll try to answer this, which I think it'll be part, if there's an optimistic scenario, which there may be, I think, in some contexts, at least in some countries, at some times, then it's one that involves the rebirth of politics. Because the, the trouble with technocratic pragmatism is it doesn't work. Because what technocratic pragmatism means is approaching what are carefully defined problem, problems defined by conventional thinking, by group thinking, and applying some conventional methods. So they say, well, the problem is really carbon. That's what it is, carbon. So we've got to reduce carbon, we've got to have net zero. Well, there's a, there are all kinds of problems that I mentioned, scientific almost issues about how quickly climate change is already going. Uh, uh, and whether we should focus instead on adaptation. But there's also the question of political legitimacy. And what's being discovered now is that there are limits to political legitimacy for policies that severely disrupt the practical lives and incomes of large numbers of people in society. So if you impose an ULES scheme in an area where there's practically no public transport, most of Britain, <laughs> or large parts of Britain, or it's unreliable or uh, scarce. That has severe impact on um, people trying to get to work. There's an impact on traders in, in cities. And there's also the subjective feeling, which is very important, of feeling imprisoned in one of these 15-minute cities. Somebody doing something to you which you resist. And I think one thing which is underestimated is the extent to which law-abidingness is a wasting asset. In the taxi that brought me here, the car that brought me here tonight, the, the driver was saying that he knows of lots of people who are going around and smashing the ULS or disabling the ULS um, uh, cameras. And now, can they, can, I mean, what, what will happen if the numbers build? The policy will eventually be overturned or you'll have a period of anarchy. I remember when Thatcher, having trialed and failed, to impose the poll tax in Scotland. That was supposed to be a trial run. It was a trial run, it didn't work, it was a disaster. So she did it in England. Um, this is, you know, it happens to all leaders, whether they be liberals or not, they tend to become um, anti-empirical. They double up. Instead of learning from their mistakes, they double up on them or triple up or quadruple up. And that resulted her in riots and her being cobbled. Something like that, I think, could happen in the case of these green policies. But as Freddie's just mentioned, it's a huge blow, not only to the faith, the worldview of the technocratic elites that support it, but also to the perception of their competence. It hasn't delivered any of the results that it's supposed to deliver. It doesn't make any difference. It costs an enormous amount of money, far more than they said. And people are supposedly converting to electric um, vehicles when there are hardly any charging points. And by the way, someone who's an expert on this made a point to me, which I hadn't thought of. He said, well, one thing which is commonly neglected is that if these charging points were installed, they'd be very, very large, much larger than ordinary pet petrol stations because um, it takes a long time to charge up. So unless you can improve the technology, you can charge up in two minutes. If each car is in a line and charges up for half an hour, it's going to be huge. It's basically none of this is going to happen. On a big, enormous, <laughs> enormous amounts of money will be wasted. People's lives will be disrupted, and then it will be forgotten. It's more like prohibition in America uh, than it is like 
a rational solution. It's the most nakedly irrational solution you can have to the growing danger of climate change. So what's the solution? Well, in Britain, I have a little tiny sliver of hope. I'm hoping for a hung parliament. <laughs> Might not happen because, the, because, because Labour has been rejuvenated by Scotland. But if it doesn't get a working majority, there's a realistic chance, I think, of electoral reform. And the only way we can really, I think, have any new ideas filtering into politics is by creating new incentives, which involves the destruction of the existing party framework, which would happen. It would happen inevitably. I observed it happen in New Zealand when they changed their electoral system back in the 90s. The parties would, all, would split. They won't split. Even the Conservatives, who hate each other more passionately than almost any other human party in history, they won't split unless there's PR. If there's PR, they'll split immediately into perhaps two or three parties. Labour will split. You could have a real socialist party, hopefully non corbynite You could have a Green Party, but not, not, a, not a conventional Green Party. You could have a, a Liberal Party. You could have a Libertarian Party. You could have a variety of parties. And I think that would be a much healthier situation. I think that's still possible. So there's the little sliver of hope. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seize it. I'm going to seize it. <laughs> 
particularly. Um, his essays and his books on the failure of illiberalism in Germany pre to 1933, he's quite clear that for all the attraction of illiberalism and that there is, in his words, a terrifyingly large part of the population that is attracted to coercion, ultimately it always fails. Ultimately, liberalism is the least worst of all outcomes. Reflecting on his work, do you agree with that? You, you offered an, another brief glimmer of hope, because I'm, I'm also like you, an optimistic personally, but I'm very gloomy about the world. So I, I was in Berlin a couple of weekends ago and went to the museum, and I was struck by the fact that Bulgaria, not a single Jew was killed. And I didn't know that. And if you look at Bulgaria now, it's sort of the politically the basket case, most corrupt place in the EU. And you mentioned Denmark as well. What did they do right, and how were they able to stand up to the the you know the conquering conquering invaders in a way that no one else did? Because there's there's hope there, I think. I'll answer the second one first, but I will I'll try and end with answers in each case. Um, in the case of Denmark, I think the king was important, wasn't he? He refused to collaborate, and there were one or two cases in Brit British uh, soldiers in captivity who had a similar line. I've been told. I've never checked this, but I can easily believe it, that during the Second World War, when British soldiers were um, uh, told to stand in the line and the Jews stood, that the Jews would stand forward, they all stood forward. Heroic, if true. So, but what did they have in common? I don't know. I don't know. But it, it does, I, I don't know what, what um, uh, uh, um, led to the Bulgarians taking the admirable stance they did, but... Um, that tells me that there is a flicker of human decency everywhere, but it can be swamped by huge areas as it was over most of Europe um, in, in the Nazi period. With, in Germany itself, nearly all the doctors, nearly all the teachers, nearly all the civil servants collaborating, fully collaborating. It wasn't just a few Nazis, it was a much more general phenomenon. On Fritz Stern, well, I'll answer your question by an historical example. You see, if you thought that liberalism was the only thing that, you see, my own view, this is slightly pessimistic, you see, everything else doesn't work, nothing works. The question is, at what cost does it not work? And how can you get the best mix? Let me give you an example. Back in 19, the early 90s, I wrote a number of things, and I actually took part in a debate with Jeffrey Sachs, some of you will know who that is, who was a tremendous advocate of radical um, market policies in uh, post-communist Russia. I was a critic of radical market policies in Soviet, post-Soviet Russia, post-communist Russia, because it had been communist for 70 years. Large parts of the Soviet economy were military-industrial rust belt. There was cataclysmic pollution practically everywhere, and the only entrepreneurship even before the communist collapse, was often criminal. So I thought an attempt to push a strong liberal line in Russia would, and you can read what I wrote in the early 90s on post-communist would lead to disaster. I thought the best thing in Russia was a hybrid. Some elements of authoritarianism, after all, it's in its long history, it's had practically no extended period of rule of law and freedom. Tiny little bit of anarchy under Yeltsin. A certain amount of certain amount of sort of feeble constitutionalism coming to nothing and then being withdrawn under the last czars, if, the, if, if maybe Stolypin had not been assassinated, if this, if that, but almost nothing. So the difference, by the way, this is why I 
any argument about Russian fascism, there are elements of fascism in Russia, uh, but it's too optimistic because actually fascism in most of the European countries, even in Germany, there were institutions and civil society relics were still there that could be revived. There's almost nothing in Russia. So I think the danger of saying only liberalism works is you focus everywhere on trying to get a liberal model rather than getting something more mixed and more realistic and less humanly costly. That's my answer. So I disagree with Stu. John, thank you very much indeed. Um, you talked about um, cancel culture in universities, and I understand that one university is running a program called Disagreeing Well with an attempt to develop what is known as uh, epistemic humility. In other words, you don't diss the other person because you think their data is rubbish immediately. And I wondered what you thought about it. Is this something that will work in restoring uh, liberal and civil debate within universities? Well, any such initiative can be valuable, and I'm glad there are such initiatives. But it tells you something that what used to be good manners and fair play and decency is now called epistemic humility. <laughs> you haven't got epistemic humility. I think I'm going to cancel you. Uh, I'm joking, but I think they're important. But it shows the difficulty that we have to somehow have a theory of what disagreeing well meant in order to try and get back to what used to be an accepted practice of tolerance. But if you ask what's the main problem in it, I think the idea, I think the fundamental idea that reasonable people can have divergent beliefs and values has been lost. I noticed that in the Brexit debate. It wasn't a debate. It was a, a hate fest, basically. My view, I was pro-Brexit, my view was that it was an issue that reasonable people could differ profoundly on. And by the way, the best argument against Brexit was put by one of my friends. It turned out to be true. I said, why are you voting Remain? He said, because I think the British political class simply isn't up to making Brexit work. <laughs> They're hopeless. I think that was a very powerful argument and very perceptive, perceptive argument. Are you still pro-Brexit? Yes, but it's, I think it's... Um, it's been botched and bungled and aborted to the extent to which uh, it's hard to see how it can be saved now. I don't think we'll go back into any complete um, EU. Um, I don't think we'll rejoin. I don't think that could be democratically legitimated. What we'll end up with is in some halfway house, which is worse than being in or out. But every progressive opinion will be tremendously pleased by this because the one thing that progressive opinion is not interested in is Europe. Uh, Europe is becoming a hard right block for various reasons. Um, uh, and uh, you never see this mentioned. People say, got to get back to Europe, got to get back in. Total disaster, leaving Europe, catastrophic in every way. Got to get, get back into what? It's, it's more illiberal than it was when we left. Uh, mind you, they'll probably blame that on Brexit. <laughs> They, I mean, they were very convoluted, convoluted arguments. So um, I would support that initiative. Remind me of your 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 quote was about economics. Yes. Where does economics fit in? Well, the trouble with any radical program of economics. I mean, I I'm kind of a bit of a dissident on this. Um, I think that, and so, those of you who are market liberals or libertarians will find this really shocking. But I think there's a good argument. Um, uh, for 
um, renationalizing or taking back into some other kind of public ownership, various public utilities, because I think just looking empirically hasn't worked in water, it hasn't worked in, in, in railway, it hasn't worked in the whole, the banks. They're very good at stripping people of their civil liberties, but they're not so good at um, 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 keeping their branches open or giving you giving people a decent return on their savings. They're, they're dreadful uh, kind of entities. I was just wondering in terms of um, the practices that we see in a sort of, uh, in Canada, it's a very different question, around um, say assisted suicide or something, um, or in the Benelux countries, whether you would see that as hyper-liberalism or post-liberalism? <laughs> They're not always um, easy to distinguish actually. Yeah, so, exactly. So I was just wondering, particularly in this sort of idea that there's something um, about faith, about Christianity that's maybe uh, welded into the humane ethic and ethic against killing in some forms of enlightened liberalism. Do you think there's a moment where a society reverts to a sort of post-liberal paganism or is that not how you see it? No, I don't see it quite like that, but I do agree with you on the earlier part of your question, which is that what stopped, you mean, there are a lot of people who say, this is true about the decadent liberalism or the hyperbolic liberalism we've got now, but we get back to classical liberalism. Everything would be all right. Get back to classical liberalism. But classical liberalism was an offshoot of Christianity. The root of early modern, the root of the practice of tolerance was in conscientious objection, in the wars of religion, in the idea of an inner, inner life in which people pursued the truth, not um, uh, obstructed by external authorities. It wasn't in the Enlightenment. Most of the Enlightenment thinkers, Voltaire might be an exception, were not that keen on um, freedom of thought and expression. Auguste Comte, very influential later, 19th century uh, Enlightenment thinker, said there's no more reason for tolerance in ethics and politics than there is in physics or chemistry. You just have experts. If you want to know what to do, ask an expert. It's ridiculous, of course, that's the age of absurdity. Should we bomb so-and-so? Well, ask. By this came, I was told this by a friend of mine who uh, advised American governments. He, he raised with uh, um, um, uh, some high-level American official. He said, what should we do about, I think it might have been even Libya even. He said, what should we actually do about this? He said, don't worry about it. We'll send out some experts, they'll solve it. So they destroy a dictatorship, a tyranny. They destroy the Gaddafi tyranny leads to a situation of anarchy in which there are two governments at least, i.e. no governments, and in which it's practically impossible to control the uh, people smugglers because there's no government to control them. And you ask, well, what should we do about it? Well, get, a, get some, I mean, just look through some list of university then just send them out, they'll get the answer. They won't get the answer because there isn't one. The damage has been done. So um, my um, basic uh, argument on on all this is that we we have to get back euthanasia. We, we're... Oh yes, sorry. Let's come back to euthanasia. <laughs> euthanasia. Well, it's just, it's just, is is it hyperliberalism or pagan repaganization, a kind of post post liberal paganization? I don't think it's paganism because, as I say in my book, the, the extraordinary thing about paganism is its moral modesty. I mean, one of the advantages of um, that Christianity had over paganism in the early in the ancient world is that when there were plagues, the Christians didn't all run away. 
That's what the pagans did. The Christians bound themselves together. They thought it was something sent by God as a trial. They had to show their virtues to each other. The pagans say, it's a mean, something meaningless. Do what we can, run away. So actually Christianity had a kind of Darwinian advantage, you might almost say, over paganism at that time. I think one of the fundamentally mistaken views is that this is repaganization. What it is is a corrupt and hyperbolic and hollowed out form of Christianity. I think uh, um, uh, the woke movement, the hyperliberal movement, is liberal. It comes from liberalism. But what restrained the matrix of theology and metaphysics and um, uh, values beyond the human will uh, that restrained liberalism in, early, in, in an earlier period has gone. So this kind of development is inevitable. I'll give you a different example. Once you get rid of this theological background, I'm not a Christian myself, I'm an atheist, but um, uh, once you get rid of it, it's very difficult not to, it's very hard to, it's very difficult to stop things emerging like the technological pursuit of immortality. Most, not all, most of the, the billionaires, the oligarch, American oligarchs, are deep into this. Because after all, what could be more of a curb on human autonomy than mortality? What, uh, uh, now, the euthanasia case is, in a sense, the obverse of that, where you, where you turn um, uh, death into a chosen choice. I think the, I mean, even for me, uh, as a liberal, honestly, the, the, the Canadian example is very troubling. Is very um, disturbing, but it's strange, and I've never seen the uh, explanation for this: why so many more people are processed into this semi-voluntary uh, uh, assisted suicide, semi-voluntary. They're sometimes told, "Well, we can't treat you; haven't got the resources." But you could consider this: you know, you could be gone by, could be gone by tomorrow, then, or next week, or a month from now. Why is it such great, greater numbers? I think something like. You might know this, right? I don't know, but 10 times as many as in California or Oregon. James is probably now. Yeah, far more than in... Um, what? Yeah, huge. But it's certainly not like that in Belgium or Switzerland or, or California or Oregon. So what's the difference? I would like to know why the slippery slope is so much slipperier. In, in, so I've, uh, um, but it's true. I mean, I think that one, of the, one of the key things that happens in a post... Uh, um, Christian society, or a society which is, contains many people for whom Christianity means nothing, or even theism means nothing, is that suicide be becomes an option. You can't get away from that. And then you've got to consider how that can be uh, contained within a legal and a moral and a social and other frameworks without really having a Canadian-like result. Or you can take the view which Christians might take, which is it should be uh, prohibited altogether, but I don't actually think that's that's sustainable in a modern society because the key, or even in the ancient society, because the key thing that tolerance was a solution for was the fact that human experiences and human values have always been, are now, and will always be dissonant. So we'll always be living among others, some of whose values and beliefs we despise and hate. That will always be the case. That's why we need tolerance. But of course, if we say, well, the solution to that is we get rid of the people who don't have the, uh, right have, the have the have the right opinions, or we gradually educate them out of their opinions, or any difference from the progressive incentive is a sign of stupidity or wickedness. That 
simply takes you down the road to the kind of soft totalitarianism that some people have complained about. Although, again, once again, um, never underestimate the fumbling stupidity of the people who try and impose them. Um, I just wanted to come back to your comments about universities because um, when I joined the University of Sussex in 1991 as a, t as a teacher, um, the, the ideology of the time was post-structuralism and the deconstruction of everything, the French philosophy. Um, and, you know, there was no such thing as truth, there was no such thing as a self, there was no such thing as an author. And, I mean, you know, I, I came into it quite late and didn't go along with that. And it was quite a struggle to make an alternative view at the time. And now, I mean, it, it seems almost like a, a volte face that, that in, well, maybe what post-structuralism did um, I'd be interested to hear your, your view on that, is to create a vacuum, a philosophical vacuum, if you like, where everything's been deconstructed. And now we have uh, the reaction to that, which in a sense is like we must have an ideology to replace all the ones we've deconstructed. And this one is not deconstructable. What's your view? Where in this country did liberalism first die and why did it die there? Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer that, but let me answer the first one about uh, post-structuralism. I do remember myself when that was an influence in universities, um, but I don't take the view that postmodernism and post-structuralism are at the back of um, what's now called the woke, the woke movement. I, don't, I think that suggests that if there hadn't been uh, uh, postmodernism or post-structuralism, there'd be no Derrida and no Foucault. Um, we'd be in a much better situation. I interpret hyperliberalism, as the term suggests, as a, met a metamorphosis within liberalism, when the matrix of beliefs that it emerged from, actually, are dropped. So ask yourself the question, why is, uh, why is what I call the woke movement? Why are they strongest in the Anglosphere, in English-speaking countries? Why is that? They're probably most strong of all in Canada now. Secondly, then, maybe America. Thirdly, Britain. Fourthly, Ireland. I don't know, strong in New Zealand. And increasingly in Australia. Why is that, actually? It's strange when you think about it. People, they, they, they interpret they, they interpret it as a universal movement. It definitely isn't when you talk about to people in China. They regard it as partly... Uh, now, I'm not talking about just ideologues of the regime. So they regard it partly with... Uh, um, um, contempt, and partly with um, uh, incredulous glee, because it means they're one of their chief, perhaps their, their chief rival is deconstructing itself before their very eyes. Um, it's not a universal, it's something which is most was American, but it's taken on throughout the, it's spread throughout the Anglican. That's, by the way, that's a problem, back to Brexit for Brexit, because it's suggested as long as we get out of these evil European influences, we'll be fine. We can, we can, we can. Some of them they want to uh, join up with the other English-speaking countries, have an Anglosphere. Well, they're the most woke in the world. There's a paradox there, which sort of hasn't been noticed. Uh, I'd also say, having read um, Derrida and um, uh, Foucault, that the playfulness of Derrida never comes through among any of these. Um, woke writers, and the, the morbid, the mordant wit, the, the, the almost cruel wit of, um, 
Foucault doesn't come through. And equally, it's not Marxism. It's in fact almost the opposite of Marxism because one of the things about hyper liberalism is it doesn't locate inequalities where they partly are, which are what used to be called class, which affects different ethnicities. It locates them in microaggressions, in cultural kind of things, in historical, in historical interpretations of what happened in earlier times of, of colonialism. It's, it, it, I mean, I interpret it in the book as partly a revolt of the professional bourgeoisie against their own superfluity. They're increasingly redundant. The cognitive elite doesn't know anything, most of it. It, it knows a patois, a vernacular, that it's learned at university. Then it moves out into the world and finds that the opportunities for that are not infinite, and they're shrinking. Shrinking for various reasons, one of which is now AI. So they're all, all on the hiding to nowhere, actually, those people. And therefore, you get an idea, how can I possibly be safe? How can I, how can I get on a career ladder when most of the career ladders have been uh, destroyed or the rungs have been pulled out? Well, you can get a career, if you like, as a guardian of society, as an enlightened guardian of society. So there is an economic explanation for it, as well as, I think, a deep spiritual civilizational explanation of, um, of these movements in terms of um, a narrative of um, uh, meaning in life, a narrative of advance in history um, like that in Christianity, in which rather than a series of, of events, succession of events, history is a, an intelligible narrative, a redemption, although it's not quite clear what redemption is in woke because one of the features of it is it doesn't allow those who sinned very easily to stop sinning. Yeah. But that too can be seen as an event. That was true in American Puritanism, was it not? It was hard to get redemption from having been a witch. Yeah. You're much more likely to be killed or uh, subject to various terrible uh, um, um, trials. So I guess the answer is, I don't believe it's something extraneous like Marxism or postmodernism or post-structuralism, I think it's internal to liberalism. That's why, to go back to our very start tonight, I do think that particular civilization is over. The, the, the conservative strategy, the liberal conservative strategy of saying, let's go back to that. Let's find a form of liberalism which is pure and authentic. Let's find one which isn't, doesn't have all these horrible, intolerant, censorious elements. I think it's hopeless. You've got to do something new, something fresh, something which um, tries to recreate spaces of free thought and inquiry that are not kind of late faded copies of ones that might once have existed. And maybe some people unheard and other organizations, new statesmen where I write, um, they're practicing this. So that's my optimistic message. My optimistic message is don't calculate whether you're gonna win or lose. Just live like this as long as you can. John Gray, thank you so much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.